everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. In this great episode, I sit down with the fascinating David Nangle, CEO of Vostok Emerging Finance, VEF, an investment company listed on NASDAQ First North Growth Market in Sweden that invests in growth stage private fintech companies across the emerging world. Born and raised in Ireland, Dave has spent his career focused on emerging markets, having worked in places like Moscow, London, and he has backed some of the top fintech names across Brazil, Mexico, Turkey, India, Kenya, and beyond. Some of VEF's portfolio companies include Creditas, Tomfio, Jumo, and Tinkoff. In this inspiring episode, we discuss David's story and why he decided to quit his London job and move to Moscow in the early 2000s without speaking a word of Russian, advantages of being a publicly listed firm with a permanent capital structure, why VEF actually invests harder and doubles down during volatile periods, and how he even closed a deal in Turkey in the middle of an attempted coup with tanks on the streets, investment lessons and why you should always invest along with local VCs, and why he's excited about the future of frontier markets like Pakistan, Egypt, and Nigeria, and just a lot more. Now join me in a great conversation on emerging market fintech with Dave Nengel. Well, Dave, welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Extremely excited to have you here, uh, all the way from the beautiful Dublin, Ireland. Is that correct? That's very correct. And thank you for that intro. I'm very happy to be here. Absolutely. Big fan of Dublin. I, I used to live there about five awesome. years ago or so. So, you know, definitely enjoyed the Guinness. <laughs> yeah, best Guinness is in Dublin. <laughs> it is true. Uh, great. Well, well, Dave, let's hear about you. You're an investor. You know everything about fintech and, and you focus on, on emerging markets. But um, let's hear the story from you. Yeah. Look, um, thank you for the invite. Very happy to be here um, and to, to share some stories with you. And I, I love our both of our histories. And we've crossed over um, with a Latam focus with time in Russia and obviously time in Dublin, which is obviously close to my heart. But you know, just pulling back to me and my story, who am I? I'm Dave Nangle. I'm the CEO of VEF, listed investment company, focusing on fintech and EM. That's why we're chatting. But I'm Dublin-born. I'm Irish. Um, Dublin parents, Dublin grandparents. And my family would have never left Dublin or Ireland or in search of glory and, and gold and all that kind of good stuff. But you know, I went international commerce in university, studying business with a language and an international bias. And through that, I did a year in France. And as non-extreme as that seems, it was kind of a game changer for me as an individual. I just got time away from Dublin, time away from Ireland and loved it and got a taste for the world as it was um, through the eyes of France. I was in the city of Marseille, which is quite a busy, non-French, almost North African city um, in what it was and what it is. So that was kind of a game changer for me in terms of wanting to get out of my comfort zone of being Irish, living in Ireland, and maybe going down a career path in Ireland in finance, business, marketing, or who knows what. Um, as that might be. So I went straight to London after university, got into investment banking. And within that, I got into research. And I always liked research and analyzing companies and how things worked and what made things tick. 
um, and got into financials research as part of Barings Bank, the bank that famously Nick Leeson blew up at the back end of the 90s before ING took it over. And I was also put in the emerging market team. So I was an Irish guy sitting in London looking at financials as an analyst in emerging markets, East Europe, the former Soviet Union, a bit of Africa, Middle East. And I was doing that for five or six years, but effectively I felt like a fraud. I was the only Irish person in the team surrounded by Czechs and Poles, Turks, Russians, Brazilians, talking and faking it that I knew something about emerging markets. So I had this itchiness to get out and, and live the story as opposed to you know, just traveling back and forth. So went hunting for job opportunities beyond London as a base and got the call to go to Moscow. So one of the best things I ever did, albeit it kind of scared the life out of me at the time, but it was the right thing to do back in 05, 06. I jump on a plane with my then wife, still now wife, but you know, we just got married, uh, go to <laughs> Moscow and work for Renaissance Capital, uh, which was a phenomenal company, investment bank in a phenomenal market at a phenomenal time great bull market into great bear market. And no one does bull and bear markets like Russia, uh, super highs and super lows. But through Renaissance Capital, just got into emerging markets from Russia, Ukraine, Georgia, Belarus, getting down back into East Europe, the markets that I knew well. And then Renaissance launched into Africa, investment banking, research, private equity. We were doing core stuff in Kenya, Nigeria, but also getting into places like Togo and Rwanda doing deals. It was just, it was phenomenal it was learning the cycle of all that. And that kind of first chapter before I even got anywhere near this BC game and the kind of the pivotal point where we'll probably get into where I got dragged into this world or launched myself into this world was, um, it was basically through a, a bank in Russia called Tinkoff Bank um, and Oleg Tinkoff being the founder and phenomenal digital f- services, fintech first offering, you know, back in 2005, six credit card then launched into a fully-fledged digital bank, one of the first in the world and arguably the best in the world today. And But through that story, I got to know the founder, I got to know the top team, how it ticked. I, I worked on a pre-IPO, worked on the IPO, and got to know all the investors involved, the cool crew, Goldman Sachs, Bering Vostok, all these players who were you know, putting in early-stage venture checks, which I knew nothing about at that stage. And obviously, it was a successful story, so I got to see successful entrepreneurs with a winning story into an IPO with successful backers making great returns. And you know, I just couldn't help fall in love with that whole ecosystem and want to propel my career from where it was, which was a great learning curve and was very grateful to what I had to that to stage. But you know, looking forward, where next? It was definitely in that world. Yeah, I think just hearing your story got me energized, you know, and I, <laughs> I want to travel again. Uh, that's that's awesome I mean as as you will know I I, Russia is very close to me I I lived there you know throughout my life at different points did you learn the language you know it's it's not easy if you don't speak Russian that's a a brutal question shame on me I didn't learn the language and that's to my shame my wife did and I got there and you know I can blame work because work was busy as hell I was in an international environment I was traveling a lot, uh, but still, you know, I did, and it's not, it doesn't lend itself. Uh, it's not one of the easier languages in the world to learn, I but know. I didn't, I didn't apply myself and I didn't need to. I lived a very happy existence in Russia and beyond uh, without learning Russian for me five years. But I, I love the fact that you spent time in Russia. You had your time there and you proper Russia in the nineties, but uh, it's, a, it's a great country, great people and great experiences. I get to it's got very bad public relations, clearly. It needs to work on that. And it's not perfect as a country, but um, it was very good to me. I had a great time, made some great friends and had great experiences. No, absolutely. And, and we'll, we'll give you a pass on the language because clearly <laughs> Russians like you. 
Um, and so we we actually had on the show Oliver Hughes from Tinkoff, you know, one of my most entertaining interviews for sure. And I have a lot of respect for Tinkoff, and it's been an inspiration across the world, right? For other neobanks. Like you've been following the story for a while. Why do you think they've been so successful? Look, um, there's many reasons behind that. And, and let's just agree with their success. They are a benchmark, you know, digital fintech or financial services platform globally. And they're one of the first out the bats. I think what was key to them was they had a revenue first and profit first model because of credit. And they got credit right, even though they went through some horrific cycles in Russia, as everybody does. They were in an ecosystem with great talents, the tech talents, the engineering talents in Russia, former Soviet Union, the second to none apart from those that have immigrated to the valley uh, from that region. So they got a very good, deep you know, mathematical and technical knowledge to work off as a team. They're working in an environment where there wasn't a lot of competition or digital first competition. They were first out of the bats and they had the backing to do it. And I guess what's really been their success since the IPO in 2011 to what they are today is that you know we see within the Tinkoff ecosystem, maybe 10 or 15 different fintech companies in one, you know, whether it's an right. SME digital bank, a consumer credit, a mortgage broker, a Robin Hood. You can just grab all these different models around the world where I go to Brazil or India and I'm looking at 10 companies in a day, all doing different you know, individual work streams or focus in fintech. And then you go to Tinkoff and you go, you're doing it all. You have it all. And it's a little bit to do with the lack of competition, the lack of capital supporting competition, the fact that they gobbled up the capital talents. They got one thing right in consumer credit round cards and just quickly evolved and evolved and had deposits and broking out of SME and kept on succeeding in a this is a company that grows like you know 50 to 100 percent previously, maybe 30 to 50 percent now per annum. Um, but it doesn't just grow in terms of balance sheet, grow top line. It grows bottom line. It's just like return on equity of like 50%. It churns out dividends. So instead of this classic private investing game where we do massive J-curves investing in companies as they burn capital with hopefully strong unity economics until one day they make a profit and we're all happy at an IPO. You know, Tinkoff does it all in terms of gives you phenomenal growth, phenomenal unit economics, uh, you know, best in class bottom line. And it's even a dividend story as well, which is nuts from a growing technology company. Yeah, yeah. I remember Oliver had told us that they don't consider a new project unless it's going to have, I believe it was 50% ROE, right? Which is <laughs> really impressive. And so, you know, VEF, let's hear more about uh, the focus, right? And then kind of the evolution of the fund over the last decade, right? Yeah. Now, look... Um, our story started in 2015, in earnest in itself. So BF spun off from a, another listed company in Sweden, which is called Vostok Nafta. But you know, what our story is, we're a listed investment company, and we focus on fintech across emerging markets. So quite a, you know, there's the structure of the company, which is listed investment company and permanent capital vehicle, which we can get into. But then there's also the mandate of the company. Um, which is fintech and emerging markets. So, you know, we're looking to populate our portfolio with the best fintech names across the emerging and frontier markets. And that's across all areas of fintech in a classic kind of payments, credit, mobile money, investments, but anything that's digital and innovation first, uh, given the market that it operates in. And then we're running around mainly scale emerging markets, Brazil, Mexico, India, and some of the frontiers like Pakistan, Egypt, we've been in and out of Turkey and Russia. So scale emerging into you know, fintech first uh, financial offerings 
and stage agnostic within that, going from very early to very late, just looking to get our hands in the best companies. And when we do, we, we try and get as much capital into them as possible. So we kind of concentration is almost a goal as opposed to a risk in what we do. So you, you have some great companies. You have Brazil, Mexico, right? Uh, Russia, Turkey, Brazil. So how did you find the companies? Because this is obviously a, a wide geographic area. So I imagine you, you were traveling a lot, but that's not enough. How did you find these amazing companies? Yeah, now look, um, the companies themselves are great. Um, you know, we've got, in the past, we've had Tinkoff. We've in Russia, number one digital bank. We've been in and out of Easyco, which is the number one online payments company in Turkey, which is like a, an Adi and her stripe for Turkey. Great founders, Barbaros and Tashin. We sold that to Naspers, almost 60% IRRs, same as our Tinkoff exit. And um, we've got ourselves into, you know, I'd say top three private fintech names in uh, Brazil and Mexico, albeit both those companies will tell you that are number one. Um, that's Creditas in Brazil and Confio in Mexico. And we're starting to do similar in India with just pay and Rupik. Um, but, you know, how do we find these companies? How do we get our capital in? How do we make it attractive? Um, you know, historically, it was definitely travel, um, albeit, as we know, travel has been limited um, in the last 12 to 15 months. But we traveled a lot as a team, um, especially in the early years. We put a lot of time on the ground, getting to know ecosystems, getting to know that the VC community has been a big one for us. Every emerging market has a local VC mafia um, of two to three names. It's growing clearly because the space is getting hot. But if you go to Latin America, as you know, um, you've got the Kazakhs, the Monashis, the Red Points. You've got a Turkey, it's 212 and Revo. Um, it's Beko and Wamda in the Middle East. It's Elbrus and Bering Bostock in Russia. But every ecosystem has its natural core local players who do a lot of the seeds, Series A, early stage checks, and bring up a lot of new economy companies, fintech and other areas of new economy, um, and make them ripe for people like us to come along and then give them their Series B or Series C check. And I guess when we started, and timing is a little bit of, of everything in life, when we were starting, there wasn't a lot of us doing what we're doing. Um, there still isn't for dedicated emerging markets and fintech, but there is a lot more capital, broadly speaking, looking at the space. But when we were starting, there wasn't a lot of us. And um, we tended to focus on the Series BC space, following on from the locals at an earlier stage. And before the, you know, the soft banks of the world come in with their big checks of Series D and beyond. So I guess it's travel, it's networking, it's the local BC community. It's a little bit of conferences. And the fact that you start to build a track record, you start to get in and out of a Tinkoff, in and out of an Easyco, you get into a credit ass, you're sitting on boards, you're, you're going to these places again, and the pipeline just starts to build. Obviously, we've got a very clear funnel and process on how we do it as a team, but these things start to feed off each other, kind of success builds on success. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes sense. And then I think it's key, uh, what you mentioned, having those local partnerships with the top brass, right? And, and you also... You have the, the model, which is permanent capital. Talk about the, the advantages of having a permanent capital fund versus you know, your traditional VC. Yeah. Look, so first and foremost, we're, we're VC in mindset. So we're, we're doing the very same thing that QEDs, the Ribbits, the, the Kazakhs do in their local markets. So we're, we're investing in the same ideology, looking for you know, the winning, in our case, fintech names um, in these markets and investing along similar terms. But you know, the structure of our vehicle it's very positive for what we do in the emerging and frontier markets world because it's permanent capital. You know, quite literally, it's permanent. It's forever capital. Um, so, you know, it's all done through a listed vehicle and listed shares. And our shareholders are people like Fidelity, Wellington, Rune Conniff, some big global institutions who are looking to access the fast growth private space through a listed product or an access product. 
for them, as opposed to them waiting for the big IPO at the supernatural valuation. They get into the earlier stuff through us. But the positives for us is that longevity of capital because an emerging market journey isn't normally a nice, simple six, seven year journey from you know start to finish. And it doesn't generally work like that. So you generally get a longer journey you know, with more headwinds, more volatility. And but sometimes you know, the longevity of a journey can be a good thing. And we've been in Tinkoff or we're in Tinkoff for nearly 15 years as a broader group. So that gives us, when we go to companies and we say, we're here to back you, we can honestly say we're here to back you for the long term, as opposed to saying we'll need our money back at a certain point. And in emerging markets, that certain point could be at a bad point in the cycle for Mexico or Russia or Turkey. Um, and you don't want to have to force your capital back, which is never nice. So permanency of capital, the long-term nature of that capital, the institutions and shareholders that allows us to bring into um, our story and back us for that makes it very clear. So I think that's that's the big thing for us of, of that. I think if there was a negative in it, I think it's around just a transparency. We're a listed company and transparency should be a good thing. Don't get me wrong. And I'm all for transparency, but we're a listed company. So our shareholders expect a certain degree of transparency from us as shareholders. Uh, but then we're investing in private companies who want to be quite closed with their information. So there's always a little, you know, a slight bit of tension between disclosure versus lack of disclosure. And then as our companies get bigger and later stages, they start to disclose more and there's a natural evolution there. Right, right. Yeah, a lot of VCs don't don't really want to share their <laughs> their returns. <laughs> uh, that's 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 really cool. And I, I gotta be honest, Dave, we we've had a lot of investors, but most of them focus in the US and Europe. Yeah. That's not to say, I mean, we, we had Hernan Casa from Kazakh, and we've had investors who look at emerging markets, but not a lot, right? So, you know, for the audience. Right, you, and you mentioned a little bit of this in terms of timing and cycles, right? But what are some some of the considerations and so, some of the surprises that you've run into investing in emerging markets versus a place like the US or yeah. the UK? Yeah, uh, look, there's many aspects to this, but first of all, I love emerging markets, so it's just it's a love affair. Um, I, I love these markets, and you know, you, you love them for their their nuances and intricacies, you know. You take it from a very analytical point of view, and they are the biggest, most populous, fastest growth markets in the world with the best demographics and the most potential. So even from an investment case, as well as the, you know, the, the cycles of fun you get with them, the long-term investment case for a permanent capital vehicle just points to emerging markets. Then you cross over the competition effect of developed markets versus emerging markets. And we actually do proper relationship decent investing. We spend time with companies, we pass on rounds, we get to know founders. And you know, over time, our capital goes into the right companies and not into others. You know, we know VCs in the developed world who are you know, they're queuing up to get five seconds of fun with a founder because it's the next hot thing off the block. So I love the lack of competition in emerging markets. And there's many good reasons for that, as we, as we both know. But you know, I think what you get, and also just the end game in emerging markets is that you know, the Mercado Libres still get built in emerging markets, the new banks, the Tinkoffs, you know, EasyCo in Turkey, you know, in our, our example. And you know, this, these companies get built in emerging markets, like they get built in developed markets, albeit the path is, is less linear than maybe it is in the developing world. So you know, I, I always go to the end game and the potential. And once you've got a permanency of capital vehicle and a long-term outlook on what you're doing, you can live through these cycles. It, you have to expect them. You know, you have to forecast them. You have to build in 10% currency depreciation into your models when you're, when you're looking at these. You have to expect AMLO to go nuts in Mexico or Putin to invade uh, you know, Ukraine or Erdogan to do capital controls in Turkey. Because if you don't expect that, 
it's just you get caught off guard. We expect volatility. And if anything, we invest harder during volatility. And you know, you asked me to get micro level what, what to expect, but you know, we hit Turkey or we invested in Turkey, EasyCo, the payments company, when the tanks were on the streets. We were it did it helped it helped with the competition for the deal, in fairness. It also helped with the pricing of the deal. But we, we sat around with our boards talking that, you know, it was a failed coup, thankfully. But it was the week of that that we were, you know, doing docs and getting to the final stage of that deal. And we sat around as an investment committee and said, well, this is what we do is we ask ourselves all the questions again about is this the right market and the right company and the right future? Is the price right? And it ended up being a great deal and a great way to back them. So, you know, we don't seek trouble and we're not, we don't go extreme. We're not in Belarus, Zimbabwe, Venezuela, Iran. We don't have to be. Um, but we know if we knock around, the, you know, the Mexican peso will go to 30 to the dollar from 20 and that will scare off half the valley. Um, we know, you know, Lula could come back in Brazil next year and Brazil could shut down capital-wise for a year. That's a great time to go shopping because we've got the long-term outlook. That's incredible. And, and <laughs> growing up in different places, I, you know, I went through some of those experiences. I mean, for example, in Bolivia, all of a sudden, there'll be... The country was shut down. There were people <laughs> rioting on the streets, shooting and all that. But I always remember folks who had a bit of capital would always be opportunistic during those periods and actually provide services that were needed, right? And then do you know, make a killing, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I, I saw that again and again in Russia, where obviously capital going into a market like Russia would be both foreign and local. But the minute you got any kind of volatility, the foreign capital, on average, not all of it, uh, would run for the hills. And then it would be bargain basement time and all the best assets in Russia, which the local capital would sweep in for. Then things would stabilize, the foreign capital would come back, the prices would go up, and the Russians would sell out. And it's just like a merry-go-round. It was uh, phenomenal to watch. So having done this for several years at this point, you know, you must have made some some early mistakes. I'm sure you have some important lessons learned. Maybe talk about some of that over the years. Yeah, look, um, I think you know what we've learned generally, as opposed to specifically, is focus and the benefits of focus. And we've invested in teams that haven't focused. They've gone multi-country before one country or multi-product before actually nailing one. And I think that the best results in our portfolio is when you get the strongest team possible focusing on one scale market and one single product and just going in every day for a period of years um, and nailing it. And that's the way they build traction, brands, revenues, and then they can do more, whether it's geography or, or company or, or product line. So I think lack of focus has tripped us up where we've assumed that someone could do everything at the same time from a standing start. Uh, timing is always one that you know we've got the right assets, uh, maybe the wrong time. Um, in a couple of instances, and we have to live, and you'll get a return on capital while you're living, uh, watching your capital kind of sit there idle uh, as the company doesn't quite take off. And then it does, and your returns start to kick in, but you've had the dormancy of timing. So, you know, right asset, wrong timing. And I guess, you know, some of the more recent lessons, I guess we, we definitely go back to the local thing. We invest with locals a lot. Um, we don't like to be naked in a cap table on our own or be the clever seed investor who thinks we found the one thing in Bolivia or Brazil or wherever that might be um, on our own. There is a, there is a comfort um, with more around the table. And you know, that obviously can help you in good times with more capital and in bad. And then you see, you know, I think the, the, the biggest lesson, and this is not something we got wrong, but it's just to play nice in the, in the VC ecosystem. It's you know, coming from the world of investment banking where it's a zero-sum game and winners and losers. 
BC is, it's not fluffy, but it is collegiate. There can be many winners of a single asset, including the founders and their team. So you have to play nice and work nice with people, especially when things go well and things don't go well at certain companies. You got to work through those things so you can stay part of that ecosystem for, for future investments. How about, we, we've talked in the past about frontier markets, right? Which is probably uh, what's next uh, for VEF, or at least you're paying attention to new markets, right? When you really think about the next few years, right? What, what do you envision? Yeah, look, it's, um, we definitely have the, the scale frontier markets on our, on our radar. Um, I'd say top of radar is Pakistan, Egypt, maybe Nigeria into Bangladesh. And these are, you know, scale frontier markets in terms of populace at, at a very, very simple basis. And but they're different markets. You know, they're you're talking about unbanked and underbanked and a small amount of banked. So the potential is huge, but the the models at play are totally different. So when you go into a Brazil or a Turkey or a Russia, much of the market it is akin to developed markets. So you're seeing the same models: online payments, cross-border payments, the square capitals of the world in a Russian context or a Turkish or a Brazilian context or, you know, a small business bank. So a lot of the models that pop up in the US or Europe are popping up in these markets and they're converting as well with better price points and user experiences into, you know, what is quite a well-banked ecosystem. And there is, you know, decent pockets of wealth and education within that. When you go to the frontiers, it can be very much, you know, finance 1.0, never mind fintech 1.0. It's, you know, it's simple payments, it's P2P, it's turning cash into digital via agency networks and then into what will eventually smartphone penetration, which is quite deep now and working off the, an app-based digital financial ecosystem. So, but it's a longer game to play. Once you're playing the education game, the first financial product game, it's smaller tickets, smaller revenue bites because everything is smaller in poorer countries. You have to think about it that way. So, you know, we're not going in, you know, heavy. We're going in light. We've made one. We're to make our second investment in Pakistan. We've been very close a couple of times in Egypt. That hasn't happened. The money going into Africa, top down, a lot of it out of the valley is quite big. Um, really serious checks. And there's four or five unicorns now knocking around fintech in Africa. Uh, unfortunately, we're not in any of them, but we struggled with that leap of faith where it's gone. But good for them and, and good for the ecosystem. But definitely the, the, the frontiers beyond the developed emerging markets are, are definitely on our radar. Yeah, we, we've talked to uh, some of the African fintechs. I mean, we, we talked to GB from Flutterwave. We had yeah. the founder of TMAP. Just in, impressive what, what they're doing. And you know, just talking to friends who are in the VC space in, in Africa, some of what I hear is that the success of Latin America is kind of driving is one of the factors, right? Driving the interest from the, the Tiger Globals, the Sequoias, right? In, in, in Africa. So that's uh, yeah. really interesting. It's, like, it, it's a big world. Um, and you, like we say, we do emerging markets. Let's include Frontier and that. That's a lot of countries with a lot of chapters to go. And there's no one that's unique. They're, all, they're, sorry, there's no one, they're not similar. Everything is different in, in a different way. And FinTech is evolving in a different way in each of these ecosystems based on what the banks are doing, the telcos, the regulators, the wealth levels, the demographics. There's so many moving parts that define you know, how fintech is evolving in each individual market with some broad rules to the game. And then the pace at which it develops and then the spaces where we can invest or not. But you know, for us, we're sitting back looking at all of this and we're trying to decide where do we put our capital? Where do we spend our time? We're a small team. And what we've ended up is spending a hell of a lot of time in Brazil. We just love Brazil. Brazil is you know, fintech gold in terms of what it offers the investor. After that, we spent a lot of time in India and then Mexico. They're probably our three big 
emerging markets with optionality around Russia and Turkey when they do throw out good ideas. We haven't spent enough time in Southeast Asia. It's definitely on our, on our radar. And then as we talked about, the frontiers are kind of next gen. And, and what, one thing I didn't ask you is, at, at what stage do you come in? Is it at the seed stage? Do you wait a little bit more? Where in the journey of a company do you support them? Yeah, like Miguel, we've done everything quite openly. We, we came into this with no rules um, other than make sure we back the right companies and, and we, we do the right maths and we get the right returns. So we've done seed in our portfolio. But what we've learned is, what do we like? Um, we like around the Series B, C stage, that kind of growth stage where there is a company. It has three, it used to have three to five years. These days, it could be one year. It used to have three to five years of traction and, and progress. Founding team is in place. You've got some, some team around, the kind of core team. Uh, the unit economics are clear. The scale opportunity is clear. And you're getting into that growth capital stage just to, to fuel the engine for more of what they've been successfully doing, kind of breakout stage. It's also a less competitive space because the locals tend to dominate early stage and then the big boys, you know, SoftBank, Tencent, and the Valley tend to turn up at late stage. So we've kind of found Series BC to be our general sweet spot around different markets. Outstanding. Well, Dave, this has been really, really interesting. I'm sure the audience will love this class on emerging market investing. But before we let you go, Dave, maybe tell us a bit about your hobbies, right? Maybe some of you, how you spend some of your time outside of VEF. Yeah, look, um, I love my time outside VEF as much as I'm passionate about it. But hobby-wise, sports, I didn't get my head. I'm a much better sportsman than I really am. So I still play football. I'm an aspiring footballer. I've got a great love affair with Maradona, but will never achieve his status. So football from a playing point of view, rugby from a fan point of view, I'm a Irish, big Irish rugby fan, Leinster. I love the tribal nature of being a fan, wearing your colors, chanting. It's, uh, it's very basic, um, but it's good fun. And then I've got a family. I've got three young kids, happily, who, you know, two girls under 10 who still love their daddy. So we go for ice cream and a boy who's uh, getting older and bolder. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I spend a lot of time with them. Amazing. Amazing. I, I remember attending some of the rugby games in Dublin and, and it was just just the best. <laughs> a lot of fun. <laughs> it is indeed. Yeah. Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining us. You know, I know this has been remote, but I'm sure uh, anyone at Wharton would love to see you. Now you're a friend of, of Wharton. And so you're, there's an open invitation for you to stop by. Super. Appreciate it. Thanks for this. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 